0: Welcome to the Northridge Church Podcast, a weekly rewind of Sunday's talk. of our series under construction uh, looking at the tools that God has given us through his word through uh, community with uh, the with the body of Christ to build homes to build families that uh, that are resilient that endure in this time in this age that that uh, that really produces homes, this age that produces homes, that produces families that aren't so enduring, that tend to break, that tend to fall apart, that tend to shatter. Uh, what can we do in the midst of the season that we live in to create a home that's going to be solid and that's going to be stable and it's going to be, uh, be standing still on the rock in the midst of all of life's storms? Uh, You know, when I think about church, and that's the subject we're talking about today, is church, the place of church in your home. I I realize and I recognize uh, if we had an hour, an hour and a half, and we don't, so you guys can breathe easy. I'm not going to take an hour of your time up today, but if we had an hour, you know, I could just go systematically through every stage, every phase of my life and talk about how how the church was there, how I grew as a result of the church. I, I can think of when we first started, after I came to Christ and we uh, got connected to the very first church that I was a part of as a, a kid, I remember, uh, I, I rem- and some of you might remember these days too, on Wednesday nights, children, we didn't go to the prayer service, but what, what did boys have? Anybody that were in Baptist world? RAs? RAs. Girls had GAs, uh, RAs, Royal Ambassadors. Okay, I don't, I don't, to this day, I don't know what I, was, what, I, what I was an ambassador to, but I know that we gathered together in a room that smelled very strongly of mothballs downstairs in the basement. And, and I, there was two men that led our RA group, uh, uh, Joe Hampton and Henry Hampton. Blew my mind as an eight-year-old because neither one of them were related in any way to my knowledge. They were not brothers. They were not cousins. They were, it was not a, a nephew-uncle uh, thing. There was no relationship, no family relationship, yet they shared the same name, the same last name. Uh, Henry Hampton and Joe Hampton. Let me tell you, uh, just to be honest, they were the worst RA teachers in the world in the fact that, you know, some of you who grew up in RAs, it was sounded like, like Boy Scouts, like Christian Boy Scouts. You know, I'd, I'd hear these stories of RAs, go camping. I'm like, we never went camping. We'd go out and build fires. I never built a fire. We'd have Pinewood Derby. Never built a Pinewood Derby car with RAs. We'd go, we'd go uh, you know, looking on, on nature hikes. Never went on a nature hike. You know what we did? What we did was we, for, for 45 minutes, sat there reading the RA magazine together. And Joe and Henry would pick, select articles each week that were really poignant for our development and really good for us to have a deep understanding in world missions, and we would just have to read them together. Um, matter of fact, I almost wonder if our parents got to them and just said, hey, our kids need to learn to read better, so could you just have a reading class? Because that's, each kid, read, you're going to read this paragraph, and you know, ta t- t- he, that's the, Tony, it's the, you know, okay, I'm sorry, the, the. Um, and, and so we'd read, and, and the idea was in our RA class, the idea was if we read well, or good, good, well, I don't know, if we did a good job reading, uh, the last 15 minutes, we could go out and play. And behind our church was a, uh, not a swamp, but it was a cesspool, <laughs> a set, literally a cesspool. It, it, it was so f- thick of stuff, you, we would throw rocks. On it and watch the rock stay afloat on top of the stuff, whatever the stuff was in there. So that's what we. we the last fifteen minutes was we could be released and we'd go behind this and, and 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 go to the cesspool and see see if we the biggest rock we could chuck out in there and it would stay afloat. You know that was our that was our entertainment. Okay. Um, and that was my experience of RAs. And you're sitting there going, Tony, you're supposed to be telling me how church was important and meaningful? Well, let me tell you, for for all the foibles and all the poor teaching and instruction that Joe and Henry did, I'll tell you about a memory that still is just in my mind. And that is, I would remem- I remember, I remembered one day in particular where we were throwing rocks. There was about Twelve of us throwing rocks out there as fast as we could find them. We're throwing rocks, throwing chunks of concrete that we're picked, we're ripping off of our parking lot. Even you know on the edge where it's breaking up, and we're throwing. and And Joe grabs me and just says, Tony, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you a little bit. and And I thought I'm in trouble. You know, I'm thinking, Oh no! I, he he saw me breaking the, the parking lot. I'm gonna he's gonna be so mad at me. You know, for, for doing that. And we go off. We go off to uh, a yeah, hundred feet away from the action. And he gets down on his knees. We're eyeball to eyeball. He and I, Joe Hampton and I. And he puts his hands on my little shoulders. And he says, Tony, I see God at work in you. I see God is going to do something special in you and through you to bless the world one day. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if you're going to be a pastor or a missionary or if you're just going to work a job but you're going to love God and you're going to love your family God is going to use you in a special way conversation has stayed with me for almost 40 years Joe a teacher that really you look at it and you hear his teaching concepts you all of us would just shake our heads and go terrible terrible you know he horrible And yet, even with his inability to master the classroom, he made a lasting impact in a kid's life. And I know that, like I said, I could go and talk about what what church meant for me as a teenager, what it meant for me as a college kid, as a young adult, as a young married person. Every phase of my life, just key and critical aspects that I desperately needed. But I also know that I'm not the only one that has stories like that. That as I scan this room, and as I'm aware that there's people online today, I'm sure that there are words, that there are descriptions that you would have about what church has meant to you in past seasons of your life, and and I would be remiss at this moment just to for you to have a couple of just to take a couple of moments and. Just ask you, in a word or two, what has church meant to you in the past? And so I'm going to ask you, what has church meant to you in the past? <laughs> what, what are some words that you would that come to your mind? Some of you got an email from me. Uh, I've, I put it out there. If you did not get an email, then that tells me you need to be in our pictorial direct directory because that's how I sent this email out. Um, it's through all the people that are a part of that. Uh, you know what would what would you describe? How would you describe in a word or two what church has meant to you? Maybe in a specific season of your life. Church family, family, family. But what a what a critical statement! What a important statement! And what that means to us. What else? Yeah, and you and I both know, Brandon, that there can be many storms, and they can rage very hard, can't they, at times? Yeah. What else? In Community, community. Yeah, thank you guys for sharing. In the midst of that, in the midst of thinking about that, I want to take us to a passage of Scripture, a, a happening that occurred in the lives of of the disciples in Matthew chapter 16 starting at verse 13 and and Matthew records this happening he says when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples who do people say that the son of man is well they replied some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from human, from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell, or Hades, depending on your translation, the un, the world of the undead, the spiritual world, will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now, this passage of Scripture, it's the first time, the first time that... That we see that that there is a recognition, a clear recognition that Jesus is the Son of God. We see a clear recognition that Jesus agrees that he's the Son of God. If you ever hear that from people who say, Well, you know, Jesus never said he was God. Well, no, he he just praised someone who called him God here. Okay? And also the first time that Jesus spells out the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of the people together, and he makes an incredible promise. Even the gates of hell will not prevail upon the impact of the church, the family of God, as they come into this world and as they claim more people, more souls in the name of God. Now, this passage of Scripture, uh, it doesn't happen. You know, I just remind myself and I remind you that Scripture does not happen in a void, does it? It's not just a couple of bald-headed, bearded guys. I don't know why they're bald-headed and bearded, but that's what I picture when I picture the of the Bible. They're robed, blue robes typically, and they're bald and they have these long gray beards that maybe they look like Gandalf. I don't know. And they're writing with quills in their hands. That's not how the scripture occurred. It occurred in real life, right? It happened flesh and blood and the writers are recording what had happened, what they have seen around them. And so this story, this story that I would argue is a pivotal part of of our, of how we came to be, the story of us as a people, as the body of Christ is so pivotable. The scripture records that it's in Caesarea Philippi. That is very important because Caesarea Philippi, uh, there is, the, and Caesarea Philippi is considered the headwaters of the Jordan River. matter of fact, we have a picture of this place. This is where Jesus uh, Jesus walked through, and this is considered the the, the beginning part, the beginning of the Jordan, the Jordan River. Now, notice behind there, there's a cave, right? You see that cave, that big black hole there? That's where the water is coming out of. Because the winter, the mountain uh, that's above it and that's behind it, uh, the, 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 the snow melts, goes into that porous limestone, goes through the rocks, comes out of that cave. That's the beginning of the Jordan. It's, and, you know, as a kid... Caves were spooky places, right? They're kind of mysterious. Multiply that by, I don't know, 10 or 15, and that's what the people in Israel believed about caves. Caves were very scary places. The idea was caves were a portal to the other world, to the spirit world, to, uh, you know, ghosts would come out of caves. Demons would come out of caves. Spirits that had ill intent for humanity would come out of caves. And in this case, you had the headwaters of the Jordan coming out of the cave because of the temperature differentiation. When this picture was taken, it was a very clear day, but oftentimes this area would be very misty. It would have a lot of fog it would because uh, the, the cold and the, and the heat the, would come together, and so there'd be clouds coming out of this cave to make the people even more convinced that this cave was a portal to somewhere you know, odd, somewhere spooky. I imagine on Halloween night, kids would come over there and they would dare each other to who could walk up to the cave and maybe throw a rock in it. Now, for the record, there was no Halloween back then, but you know what what I'm getting at, okay? You know what I'm getting at. This is a place that is spooky. To add to the spookiness of this area in Caesarea Philippi, you know, we just think that, oh, everywhere in Israel, they all worship God and they all were good, God-fearing, Bible-believing people. Not true. There were chunks of the Holy Land, chunks of this area that were very pagan, that were very Greco-Roman and that they would worship and they they would have very dark, sinister practices. Guess what? Caesarea Philippi was one of those places. Matter of fact, we have a picture. Here we're gonna come in a little bit closer to, to, the, uh, to that cave. You see all those carve-outs? You see all those little cave, like little mini caves or little cutouts that are in the rock there? What used to be there was a shrine. It was a temple, an outdoor temple, uh, that worshiped the the god Pan. You know Pan. Pan was the horned god, the, the goat the goat god. Goat feet, human body, goat horns on his head, right? Pan, the guy that played the flute, the pan flute. You know, that's where we get the pan flute from. Um, there would be, we are told and we understand from history and from archaeology that they would put wooden statues of pan in all of those little spots, all those outcroppings, and they worship people. That was the center of pan worship in the ancient world, Okay. Now to help understand because we're civilized and even though I don't see any I, I see a few kids, so we're, you know, want to definitely keep it G rated here. I won't go into the details of, of what it was to worship Pan other than to say, one, it was scary. The word to help you understand, we get the we get the word panic from the word pan. Okay, So when you think about, you know, you're describing someone panicking, the idea is that is the sensation when you are around Pan or his followers. That's what people are feeling. Pan was a fertility god. And as I read and as I've read what this, what the practices of, of worshiping Pan involved, it involved oftentimes fertility issues that would create panic, panic. Meaning, usually in these worships, that not everyone that was involved in the worship were willing participants. That some people were forced against their will, and they their bodies were defiled against their will. They did not want to be there. They did not want to partake. It did not matter because people more powerful than them made them come there. That's the center of what's going on here. And Jesus brings some. Some in some cases, some young. We think John probably at this time is maybe 15 years old at this time. Uh, Some young disciples with him who've never been away from their mamas for very long. He's brought some people like Peter, who are good old boys, blue collar workers, hard workers, but still live in backwoods areas that just don't have never seen what life is like in the big city. Right? You know, it'd be akin to taking somebody that maybe has grown up their entire life in like Sparta, Missouri. And, and sending them to, uh, to New Orleans during Mardi Gras or send them to, to, uh, to the strip at, in Vegas during the height of some of their most sensual activities or sensual seasons. Right. These I, I envision as Jesus is walking through the lanes with his disciples. I just have this picture of these men being cl- clustered together even closer because they just see all this stuff around them. And they see the darkness, and they see the evil, and they're they they and they're scared, right? They're just scared because they're just like, man, I, I you know, they, they see in some cases the human slaves that are going to be a part of the pan worship, and they see them behind cages, and, and they're looking at this going, this is not, this isn't what Israel's about. This isn't home. What? And Jesus is walking with these guys through the streets and he starts a conversation. What a weird time to start a conversation, huh? As they're in the middle of the most decadent place that Jesus could imagine, that Jesus could take these guys. He's saying, let's talk about spiritual things. Who do people say I am? All right? Who what, what, what's the word on the street about me? And, and Peter reveals, says, You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. What what an interesting time to claim Jesus' kingship in the middle of the most evil part of of Israel at that time. And Jesus says, you're true. You're speaking the truth right now, Peter. And then he reveals something very, very interesting. These guys, as they are terrified of the culture around them, around them, that, that Jesus says, the truth you just spoke—that truth, the very gates of all this world that you're experiencing right now—will not be able to touch the, the, this kingdom that you, we're in right now. That is so scary and so frightening and so disturbing and so and and so uh, violent and evil. It's not going to destroy what I'm building, guys. That's what Jesus is declaring. That conversation obviously had great impact with Peter because because just like I am bringing to you a story of how a man spoke into my life, I go to continue on in 1 Peter. We were there last week. I just could not help myself as I kept on reading 1 Peter, and I was in verse 4. I saw a verse that I thought applies today, and I'm like, I wonder, I just can't help but wonder if Peter remembered those days where he saw pan worship for the first time, presumably, and he heard the call of what the church would be in the lives of people who followed Christ, if he was thinking about that when he was writing to the churches in 1 Peter 4, in which he declares, he says, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Man, does that describe you? Do you find yourself anxious, anxious to do what God wants from you? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because oftentimes we're anxious about the the new job that's in front of us. We're anxious about the vacation. We're anxious about how our kids are doing in school. We're anxious about things in the world. But do we ever find ourselves actually getting anxious about following God and following His will, His will? His will for our lives. Verse 3, you have had enough, you have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. You've had enough in the past of these evil things, of these evil things. And then he describes them. He's describing them. And and may I add, too, there are some versions that will describe this. You've had enough of the past of this, of the flood of evil things. Uh, That's another translation there. Verse 4, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer, Uh, here, I, I jumped ahead. You no longer plunge into, get this wording, the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. So they slander you. Verse 4, of course, let's, I'm going to read it again. Of course, your former, former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things. There's so many things here to talk about, isn't there? First of all, I, I can't help but wonder if, as Peter was describing this, Describing this flood of destructive and wild things. Was in the back of his mind, him, was he going back to, to 30 years previous when he walked through Caesarea Philippi and he experienced pan worship and he understood what panic felt like, maybe on a whole new le- level? And, and, and he's sitting there going, man, this, this is how the world operates. This is how the world operates. And here now, 30 years later, Peter is talking to first-generation Christians. Many of these people were people who probably worshipped Pan. And they had probably done things that were very evil, very terrible, very destructive to themselves, to their friends, to their families. And and Peter saying, Hey guys, you're no longer in that world. You have been bought at a price. You are called to be someone different. And out of that, you say no to living wildly. You say no to living destructively. You say no to these sensual ways of living because they're very Unhealthy. They're very destructive to you. You you step away from that. But then Peter records, this is why I love Scripture so much, because it's so real with where we're at today. You know, when I talk to someone, when I talk to someone who's an alcoholic, one of the things that they'll visit with me about their first four or five weeks of being dry, they're absolutely shocked. They're absolutely shocked when, when they say to their friends who they party with, hey, you know what, guys? I'm going to be sober for a while because this is not helpful to me. It's not helpful to my family. It's not helpful to my kids. It's not helpful for my work. So I want to be your friend, but I don't want to drink anymore. You know what? Guess what? What happens? What happens? Those friends are no longer that guy's friend or that lady's friend, are they? And that person who was the alcoholic will be like, Tony, I thought they were my best friends. I thought they were with me the, for through thick and thin. I thought they would be with me all the time. I could count on them. And as soon as I told them I wasn't going to drink with, him, with them anymore, they ran away from me. And, you know, you'd think that in this person's expression, like every time I've dealt with this, and let me tell you, over my years, I mean, I've had that conversation at least 20 times. It's like that person, that's the first time they've, it's like, like they're the first person to discover this reality. Uh, How funny how people, when they're doing evil, when all of a sudden you want to stop doing evil, don't want you around anymore. Interesting. Interesting, isn't it? Peter, we, we think we discover that in our generation. Peter's saying that back, back there, isn't he? He's saying that back uh, 2,000 years ago. He's saying, hey, when you no longer want to live in a destructive manner, want to live in a way that's selfish, you no longer want to live a worldly lifestyle, and choose you choose something better for yourself, are you shocked that your best friends now do what in the Bible? They begin to slander you. They begin to talk bad about you. They begin to put every trick in the book, play every trick on you to try to get you to turn back to your evil ways, to try to get you to turn back to the ways that you once did life. They they will do everything they can to get you back into their boat. Why? Because whenever you are taking a stand, whenever you're living life differently, you're pointing to something greater than yourself. You're making them be reminded that I'm broken. And what's going on here is not fixing me and it's not helping me. Peter's telling of this scenario. He's talking about this experience. He's saying, look, the church, the church has a way of pulling us out, drawing us to something greater. And, and, and then he warns us here in, in 1 Peter 4, he says, when these former friends are surprised, when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild things, they, they will slander you. They will say terrible things about you. Peter knew very well, knew very well that the world around us is destructive. It experiences, it it has a way of destroying people. It has a way of destroying the church or the, the family. So the question I ask today in the midst of this Bible study, in the midst of us looking at Scripture together, is how do we build a home that can withstand such an onslaught. You see, many of us they think, well, I just I just need to I, I I'm just going to be we're going to we're going to be a perfect Christian family in our in our home. You know, we're going to have the 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 little phrases up on our mantle. You know, God bless this home. We're going to have the family Bible out there. We're going to make sure we're going to make sure our our kids are doing the right thing and and all of those things. The problem is with that mentality when you're saying I, I'm gonna do this on my own, is friend, first of all, you don't live in 1850s Wyoming where you are you only see people maybe once every four months. You live in a culture that guess what? It has a way of creeping into your home, whether you like it or not, because of TV because of radio, because of media, because every day most of us interact with people that are outside. So that has a way of coming in to our children. It has a way of affecting us in ways we don't know. What can we do other than just saying we're going to build bigger walls around our home to keep the the world at bay? What can we do? Well, Peter gives us some input in here, and he answers the question. He answers the question for me in chapter 2, verse 5 of 1 Peter. He first writes, he says, And you, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests through the mediation of Jesus Christ, You offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So first of all, Peter is saying, hey, you have a new identity. You're no longer just a a pagan out there in the world. You are an ambassador of the living God. You are part of his kingdom, a kingdom that Jesus said these people, this ecclesia, this gathering of people, the very gates of hell will not prevail against you. He's saying you are an ambassador here and you are not just an ambassador, you are a priest. What's a priest? A priest is a person who represents God to humanity. And, And Peter's giving everyone, every one of us, the badge of priest, saying we have the privilege of representing God to this world. But he goes on in verse 9. He says, you, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people... Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Here's what I'm saying to you, church. What's the, what's the story here? What's the scoop? How how do we how do we as a family Take the tool that God has given us, known as the church, the ecclesia, the gathering together of God's people. How do we use that and employ that for the good of our families, for the good of our home, for the good of our of our kids, for the good of our spouse, for the good of us as individuals? How do we do this here in just practical language? What I would tell you is this. Do not make church an afterthought, friends. You know, I read an article um, eh, about a year ago that was talking about why it is that, that back like just even 20 years ago, 20 years ago, the average American attended church, the average Christian American attended church um, three times a month. And I remember 20 years ago, for the record, sitting there with all these pastors in a room, you know, regularly in our staff meeting saying that is not enough you know, and Nolan and some of the older guys were reminding, they were like, you know, I remember a day, I remember a day 20 years ago, when people come to church five times a week. You know, they'd talk about that. They'd talk about how, you know, there's four weeks in the, there's four weeks out of the month and they were at church five weeks out of the month. And you're like, how does that, that math doesn't work. But yet, you know, that's what, that's what they would say. And And they talked about how just how, how, hey, the church, are we going to be as strong? Can we be as strong if people are diminishing their membership, diminishing their sense of value, their sense of leadership, their sense of responsibility to the church? Well, fast forward 20, day, 20 years now, and again, I was around people who were having heart attacks because people on average were missing one week a month, church. Guess what? In America today, the average church attendances of the average church attender it's 1.5 times a month, which for the record, like 95% of you are like, man, I'm a lot better than that. You know, you're feeling pretty good about your membership, aren't you right now? But, but in, in America today, the average person attends church 1.5 times a month. Now, the purpose of today is not to beat anybody up for go, saying, you need to go to church more often. Because frankly, if your goal is just, you come to, to say, well, I, I warmed a seat and I sat there and I ate a donut you know, check the box. If that's your goal, then you're not getting anything out of this experience. And frankly, we're not getting anything out of this experience with you having that attitude, right? That's, that's not the way to go. I'm not trying to say we've got we got to raise and increase our church membership attendance. No, no. But this is what I'm saying. I'm saying that in this article that was talking about that, I almost forgot that, Dave. I was like, where am I going with this? In that article, it was talking about saying, well, the reason that's occurring is because back in the day, 50 years ago, people had less money, they had less options, they had less abilities. 50 years ago, people took like one vacation a year and that was it. And the other 51 weeks, they were at home. And now, because we're much more fluent, because we have uh, many more opportunities, because we have all these different ways to travel and, and do vacation, because, uh, because you know, we have uh, many more options for our children to go out in sports and things like that, that is what has driven those numbers down. While I'm sitting here not saying that the option or the the, the what we need to do is, you know, let's decrease our our, uh, you know, our funds, it's decrease our options to travel. I'm not saying those things, but what we need to, we need to look at is we need to examine, are we as a home, do we make our spiritual family an afterthought? Is it an afterthought of, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I can have enough time in church, I'll go there. If there's enough time in my busyness, I'll connect but, but if anything is going to get cut in my busy life, the first thing that's going to be cut is going to be my faith family. Cut that, because I don't have time for that anymore. If that's kind of your, if that's your modus operandi, if that's how you operate, I would challenge you to maybe you need to reevaluate, friend. Maybe you need to rethink, because the reality is God has developed the church to be a very powerful tool to be employed within your family in order to help protect your family, in order to to create resiliency and create a family that's going to be focused on victory for their lives. And so what I would say to you, what do you do with this passage? Don't make your church family an afterthought. Not something that's really down low on the list that if I can get to it, I'll get to it, but I got 10 other priorities above it. But instead, what can you do? Ask the question on a regular basis in your home, with your spouse, with your kids. If you're by yourself, if you're alone, just you take time to think through this. How can you love the people? Love the people. How can you put your life out where you take time to know other people within the church and you love them as brothers and sisters in Christ? And you no longer see those people of, oh, they're a commodity. They give me something or they, they bless me. They help me. But, but no, instead, hey, this is my family. These are my people. These, this is my identity. How can I love the people? And how can I coach my home into being a home that models for our children and for people watching us that we as a home love the people? And how can we also not only love the people, but how can we lean into the good works that are assigned for my home to do? Because you realize this, your home friend, your home friend. I don't care if you got a home with, with 20 people in it or if there's only one person in your home. Guess what? When God looks at your home, he assigns and give, gives each home a task or tasks to accomplish for the body of Christ, for the betterment of the kingdom, to point to the world that this kingdom, that, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is built on the truth that, God, that Jesus is the Son of God. He died on a cross and he rose from the dead to free people from their very own sin. And that message, the message that they can have friendship with God through faith in Jesus Christ... The very gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you, you have a task. you have a part in that in that drama. You have a part in that that uh, that task to communicate that and to show that to the world around you. You want to have a prevailing home? If you think you can do it on your own with your own authority, with your own power, my friend, you're fooling yourself. And here's the sadness. If you have that attitude, sooner or later, you will discover, you will discover how wrong you were about it. And the the truly sad thing is oftentimes we discover that when it's too late. When the kids are grown and decisions have already been made and their paths are already struck out and then you go, oh man, I wish I would have done something different here. And you can't back up. You can't go backwards and and change things. And so it's so much better for us to figure out where we're at right now and see the change and make the change. And so I would challenge you. You want another tool to make your house a home, to make the people who live inside that house a family that implore the church. Bring the church into, into your community And do it in a way where you love the people and you lean into the good works that are assigned for you to do. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we thank you, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for just even being able to take a moment to see how in the midst of chaos, in the midst of of false worship, in the midst of human beings acting as terrible as they possibly could act, Jesus is telling the truth that he is the son of the living God and that on that truth, on that fact, your church is based and your church, the very gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so, God, we feel in this day and age, we feel evil pressing in in our lives. We feel evil pressing in on our kids and our grandkids. We feel evil pushing and being forced upon us when we have to have very awkward conversations with friends and co-workers when we uh, are finding ourselves reading articles and things where we just feel the pressure of being a Christ follower. There's a little bit more pressure there. There's a little bit more uh, of a sense that, that our thoughts are not welcomed in society today. Yet we know that those things will not prevail against your church. So today, God, I ask that you, your Holy Spirit would just... Help us and speak into our families and our lives in real time about how we can make that a centerpiece of who we are as the body of Christ, as, as a family, as a person that wants to take my house and turn it into a home, that we would not ignore the church, that we would put the church and put the people that make up the church and the, the works that make up the things that we do front and center. Oh, speak to us today and help us connect those dots, God, These things we pray in your son's powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Northbridge Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about Northbridge Church, you can find us online at mynorthbridge.org.